previously on Relative Fiction. When my mom would go out of town, any other city, and you're in a hotel room and there's a phone book, my mom looked up the Georges. They cared about you and they were just heartsick that, you know, you'd been kind of kidnapped in a way. I had to promise her or I couldn't talk to you. But she said I'd never see her hear from you or her again. He was kind, but at the same time, he could be extremely mean. I wouldn't recommend they try to find him because it probably would do more harm than good. And nobody could figure it out. I would send Christmas cards, birthday cards, get nothing back. Listeners be advised, there is extra swearing in this episode. We have changed some names to protect people's privacy, but all of these stories are true. My father was dead, but I still felt compelled to find him. Through stories and memories, I collected every remnant as evidence for a mystery I was no longer even sure I understood. I mean, what was I even looking for at this point? He was dead. All I knew is that after talking with my father's friends and family, I now had even more questions. I really wished I could just talk to him. This journey had started with a palm reader. Ending it with a seance felt right. So on a sunny Sunday afternoon, I dialed up my friend, psychic medium Jessica Lanyado. I've known Jessica for over a decade. I met her shortly after the palm reader blew the doors off my reality. At the time, I thought I was too nervous to ever talk to any kind of psychic again, but I was still drawn to Jessica. She calls herself an intuitive counselor, and that's her whole approach. She isn't there to revel in the shock of her predictions or insight. She sincerely just wants to help. Also, I respected her philosophy concerning speaking to the departed. My attitude with dead people is the same as my attitude with living people. I don't talk to men I don't fucking know. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't just trust people because they're dead. Like, that's ridiculous. Jessica felt like the perfect guide for the friendly interrogation of a notoriously charming man. I was sitting at the kitchen table of an Airstream trailer in the middle of Oregon. Are you in an Airstream? That sounds so fancy. And Jessica was in her wood-paneled office in Oakland, California, surrounded by crystals, plants, and diffused sunlight. She seemed to be paying attention to something slightly out of my view. Jessica agreed to find my father via seance. But first, she said, she had to swipe away a creepy religious man that was lingering around me energetically. And this fucking guy, who the fuck is this guy? Hold on. Because there's definitely you have somebody and it's a dude and he wore hats. Did you have any religious people in your family? I don't know, like my my grandfather was religious in a way, but it was... Did he wear a hat? I'm, my grandfather wore hats, but more like a, like a newsy kind of page boy hat. The guy in the weird hat had apparently learned I was spiritually open to a ghost who had something to say. He's like, you just need... God. You just need God. He Don't go to your father. Go to the father. Does that make sense? I imagined it was some kind of Catholic henchman, sicked upon me by my mother's rampant praying. Jessica picked up on my suspicions without me even sharing them. Y- your mom must be quite controlling. Yes. She would like to be, but I don't. I've separated a little bit. I mean, yeah, not 
effectively, but it, it would make sense when you say energetically, I'm opening myself up to being contacted by spirit, that on an energetic level, your mom would be like, perfect. I've got just the man for you. Despite the fact that a mysterious religious spirit was detected loitering in my presence, my seance with Jessica was not as spooky as the ones I've seen on TV. It was held via Zoom in the middle of the day, with chickens squawking in the background. This was not the stuff of Ouija board hauntings. As Jessica connected with my father's spirit, she talked fast, slowing down only to listen, then looking over to the side and nodding before reporting the information back to me. But I am starting to see your father. I see what you mean by a Jim Belushi face. My mom referred to him that way. and She was like, oh, he's so hot. He looks like a Belushi. Okay, you know, uh, but that's just not uh, my association with hotness is what I, I owed. But he agrees with your mom that he was hot. He thinks he's very hot. He thinks he's funny and smart and charming. And, you know, he wasn't the greatest guy, but he wasn't the worst guy. My dad showed up quickly. And unlike my mom, he was willing to talk with us. From Oregon Public Broadcasting, I'm Nicole J. Georges, and you're listening to Relative Fiction. If you tell a lie enough, right, it becomes the truth, and that's the only thing you know. This is terrible of me, but because of his history, the first thing I thought was, does he have another family? I do remember that he hired a private investigator to try and find you, but they changed your name. You're going to get really different stories from different people. There's not going to be a central story in some ways. And that's the story. Like, how could all these things happen to us growing up and no one noticed? It made me really question, did all of this happen the way I remember it? With the help of my producer, Claudia Meza, we'll be delving into the heart of one of the most nebulous mysteries of the universe. Family. Chapter 5 ghost dad. Despite little to no information on who my father was, Jessica's read on his spirit was dead on. He likes having a body a lot. He's a very visceral, hedonistic person. He's enjoying following you through this, and he's not enjoying being emotionally accountable. I know some people would find it odd to commune with their dead, estranged father through a medium, but I walked into this seance curious and not entirely skeptical. Considering the fact that my own mother has looked me right in the eye and lied about many, many things, I've learned to cling loosely to fact. Everything is doubtable, but also everything is potentially true. I don't need to know how clairvoyants do their work. All I needed to do was listen. I have to say personally, uh some of the things that I really love and enjoy about you, Nicole, your dad has. Just fucking weird, funny, charming, weird goodness, you know. He does like being compared to Jim Belushi. He does? Yes, yes. <laughs> your dad's really, I mean, moving along, moving along. Um, a lot of your most triggering qualities to your mother are just like your father. This reminded me of David Jr.'s story about our dad's playful teasing. My mom came out of their relationship always on the defensive that she would be the butt of any joke. She said he made her feel stupid. And as a person who inherited his sense of humor, it felt like I was constantly walking on eggshells, trying not to accidentally hurt her. Aside from that, the most my mom had ever shared about her relationship with my dad was distilled down to 
one fine night in Ensenada. But I think that anecdote about my conception wasn't meant to fill out my father's story. My mom didn't want me to know about him. She just wanted to brag about having sex and having been to a beach. And it makes sense that your parents would choose each other. They made perfect sense. They were an amazing couple until he changed. I wondered if this was when he got run over by a forklift. My sister Megan had told me. He got injured on the job when I was in my sixth grade year and he couldn't work and he was super, super depressed, like wouldn't get off the couch, watch TV all the time, you know, wouldn't draw the curtains, like really bad. That's kind of when everything started going downhill. My mom does have a low tolerance for vulnerability, perceived weakness, and buzzkills. I could see my mother losing interest. But Jessica explained it was more than a personality shift. Coming up after the break. He really kind of destroyed something in her because he lied to her at every step of the way, but that's actually not what he did. Welcome back. This is Relative Fiction. Even though my mom won't talk to us for this podcast, Jessica seemed to be able to tune into my mom's frequency, too. He really kind of destroyed something in her because he lied to her at every step of the way, but that's actually not what he did. He told her the truth until his truth changed, and then he didn't defend it, explain it, or hold her hand through it. He just left. She thought she found the love of her life, and that really was so painful for her. It seems here like my dad believes he left my mom, but my mom very clearly understands that she left him for a prince. But in spirit, Jessica was correct. My mom was traumatized by her relationship with my dad. I mean, so much so that she killed him off in her own story. She recently told me he had been emotionally abusive to the point of trying to isolate her from her own family. She just said he had been controlling and was always trying to be a tough guy. But she, of course, didn't let me dig any further into this story. Jessica continued. You know, your mom experiences you as reiterating that trauma, you know, of like, you don't hold her hand. You just tell her like, I'm this, I'm that, you're this, you're that. And she has to just handle it. And that's just like your dad. But it's not actually. That's just her twisting the story to justify a narrative in which she is a victim. This twisting of narratives was something I was used to untangling. I thought of my mom's own self-erected hall of mirrors, with all its strange multiplicities. From heroes to villains, saviors to captors, depending on where you're standing, they can all look the same. Her evasiveness felt more like self-protection than an attack. My dad, according to Jessica, also had a bit of this in him. Your father's a very fucking hard time staying with responsibility and emotion. And, you know, we've been talking for such a short period of time, right? Yeah. It's just like 20 minutes stops. And in this period, he can feel like in the last several minutes that he really, really loves you and that you're his child. And he doesn't want to feel that way. It's not a rejection of you. It's really a rejection of himself. He understands now that he loves you, but he doesn't want you to need him. He doesn't want anyone to need him ever. He has a brother or is it a best friend? I can't tell. Brother or best friend? 
Yeah, Dell was his best friend. Were they like best friends their whole lives? Up until up until he cut off that whole side of the family. So it's the best friend that I'm talking about then. Okay. Because he also really wanted to take care of that person until until he didn't. Had you been raised by him, you would have fought with him all the time because the two of you are so similar. You have the similar bullheadedness. This is what he's telling me, that you have the similar bullheadedness. I mean, he's showing me now that he would have rejected you for it. He would have like flat out just been like, nope, and bounced on it. And he's glad that he didn't have the chance to do that because that would have fucked you up. It would have made you a lot less yourself. This hit a familiar place of disappointment. It felt like a confirmation that I was not worthy of being parented. And that was a shame I had felt my whole life. I knew not to expect anything from the people who were supposed to take care of me. Even a ghost didn't want to raise me. I just nodded in silence. Jessica said my dad knew he wouldn't be very good at raising girls. Girls he found very uncomfortable. He knew how to seduce women. He knew how to uh, be in the honeymoon stage of women. And then he knew how to shake a woman loose. But that was pretty much the extent of his understanding of females. And he wasn't interested in working on it. He felt that women were crazy. And that's because they would expect things from him that made no sense. Before I was born, my parents thought I was a boy. My dad was excited. They even wrote my name, Oscar, underneath the sonogram photo. Yeah, he liked boys. Boys made sense. You tell a boy to fuck off, they fuck off. You talk to a boy, they talk back. It's easy. It's a transaction that he understands. He actually didn't say fuck off. He's uncomfortable with me presenting him that way. Dell had mentioned my father's generally strained relationship with women. My father's spirit confirmed every reflection his family had presented, the good and bad. But how bad was what I really wanted to know. Did he work outside the law? Yes. Okay, yeah. Because this is, you know, it's like this this reiterated theme of like, oh, you know, I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Hey, he doesn't, want, he doesn't want you to poke around money. He doesn't want you to get anyone in trouble, you know? Yeah. I just focus on his personal life. That's fine. Well, what did I expect? For him to rat himself out? The specifics of my father's supposed shady dealings would be a mystery I have to keep wondering about. But maybe he'd be more forthcoming on the latest family secret. Okay. Yeah. Um, does he have anything to say about why he cut my grandma off and his side, his side of the family? Why he stopped talking to them? His own mother? Yeah. Yeah. They were awful people. That's his attitude. There was a lot of abuse on that side of the family. There was alcoholism. There was abuse. Um, I don't think it was just abuse to him. I think there was abuse around him. You think your mom's family keeps secrets? The thing about your dad's side of the family is there is no elephant. There is no room. What are you talking about? Your mom is like, yeah, it's an elephant in the room, but we don't talk about that. Your dad is like, what are you talking about elephant? I don't see an elephant. Point to me an elephant. There's no elephant. And then again, burn the whole house down, change states. About 30 minutes into our seance, Jessica asked my producer Claudia and I the question that most family members have asked me through this process. The one I'm still trying to answer now. What, what's your end goal? Feeling overwhelmed by my own answer, Claudia stepped in. In a sense, to try to find out who this man was, 
I mean, from what I'm seeing about who this man was is best of luck with that uh, because he was different things to different people very much on purpose. I want to share that because what you're doing is kind of like going into all this intensity of him. But he and I guess maybe you are actually hearing this from other people, but he was just charming. He is charming and smart and and he really didn't mean to hurt you or anyone else. He did. He didn't. He didn't relish creating harm. You know, he, he, it's not that he's cavalier to it. He's disassociated from it. Ugh, your dad has a lot of trauma and you're not going to be able to excavate that. I mean, he's just a little confused by what you're doing. He is? Yes. Yes, he is. Yeah. The fact that you're trying to excavate a story with him is just he's a little like, to what end? He's not offended. He's not like insulted. He's not hurt. But he's just like, I don't think it in any way occurred to him that he was important to his kids, in particular, his female kids. But Jessica did have a lead for me, someone earthly who could help me piece together what my life really would have been like with my father in it. So your brother, there's there's one of your brothers that you that you have a relationship with or no? Yeah, one of them I do. Two of them I don't. And the one that you do, what's his name? David Jr. He, he your dad's so protective of of him. Like, so protective of him. That's his baby. I think your dad treated David like every one of you wanted to be treated. And for whatever reason, he decided he could with that child. And if you really want to know your dad, your father is right now saying, get to know David. That's like his better self. If my mom was telling me the truth about my dad all these years, and I was better off without him, then she who raised me child support free, truly was the hero of the story. If my dad was the great father figure he purported to be, then my mom's custody hearing avoidance and state line jumping ended up depriving me of a father and an entire family. But Jessica had also said my dad told her he would have rejected me and bounced regardless. And I trusted Jessica. I needed some kind of tiebreaker. So, I decided to follow my ghost dad's advice. I called up David Jr. again. Maybe I'd missed something. My brother David and I have some things in common. We have the same eyes. We both have teeny tiny fingernail beds, something my sister Megan pointed out in Texas. And we both love animals. Oh, hey, who's that? This is Monica, she only got one eye. I like black cats. And so I saw this one, I was like, oh, I gotta take her. And so her tail's crooked, something's wrong with her nose. She's dead. David Jr. placed Monica on his lap for a formal introduction. My producer Claudia laughed and noticed an odd congruency. Oh, wait, Nicole has a one eyed dog. There you go. I don't know where she is. Hold on, I'm trying to find her. Panyo! Panyo! Oh, there she is. Hold on. Panyo, this is your uncle. We each held our pets up to the computer screen, noting that both had an opposite eye missing. We were like mirror images of each other, but reversed. That's weird. David Jr. and I are also both newlyweds. But while he had a huge heterosexual family wedding in Italy, I gay eloped during the pandemic in a forest ceremony officiated by a lesbian witch in rural Oregon. And this marks the point where my similarities with David Jr. end. For one thing, while I was shuffled into new schools throughout my childhood and ran as far away from home as I could once I dropped out of high school, he's... Still living in Friendswood, Texas. I've lived here basically my whole life since I was like two, I think. Live about a 
a mile away from my mom and all our family lives in Friendswood. I think we got like four or five families here in Friendswood. I do taxes. I have a tax office that I work at. I am a real estate agent and that's about it. I think pretty basic. I've spent most of my adult life in low-paying, nonprofit jobs to support my art and my comics. My friends have playfully called me a food hoarder and wondered if I lived through the Great Depression because of my scarcity mentality. I scuttle away pizza crusts and save single bites of leftovers. I've also spent 19 years and thousands of dollars on therapy, reparenting myself to make up for my shaky childhood. But I think that I had a normal childhood. I mean, I love my parents. My parents were super awesome. Um, you guys talk with my mom. She's an angel. I don't have any complaints about my childhood. I would say that. Like, I don't say like, you know, if you told me, hey, I get to redo it and you get the same thing you had before, I would, I would take it. If I could turn back time, I would have dropped a dime on my mom, joined Alateen, and narked myself out to social services in a heartbeat. David's upbringing sounded ideal. And it was hard to believe it had been provided by the same man that stole my sister's Snoopy sleeping bag. You know, he was a tough dad for sure, but he was, he was always there for us. We related mostly through sports. I just grew up playing football, baseball. He was my coach. Meanwhile, I had faked a limp, bandaged my limbs, and forged doctor's notes all so I wouldn't have to participate in PE class or group sports. But even through all our differences, David Jr. said he could easily see me in their family. And I feel like had you been able to reach him at, I don't know, say you were five, six years old and you got to reach out to him as bad, you'd have been here. Like it would have been like, nope, not gonna happen to my daughter, take her out of there. Cause that's the type of guy he was, right? I put away what Jessica Lanyado had said about my dad and I clashing to get lost in this fantasy. I thought of all those times I packed up my tiny suitcase as a kid, stuffed it with peanut butter sandwiches and books before hitting the road of our suburban neighborhood. I was aimless, but I just knew that I wanted to be somewhere else. What if there had been a place to run to? Alongside the urge to run away is the desire to be found, discovered. What if that private detective Tina says my dad hired had actually completed his job? Toad wouldn't have been like, no, we can't have anybody else. My mom would have drove and got you herself and been like, no, come here, right? And, and live different. You know, that's the type of person Toad is. If you recall, Toad is David Jr.'s nickname for his mom, Tina. I pictured myself school-aged, unpacking my sandwich bags and paperbacks, living in a house in Texas with a woman named Toad and my real-life dad. Just another rescue that would have been welcomed into their home. Tina assured me. You know, I don't know. He might have been a pain in the ass in some ways, but you probably would have loved him because he loved to go do stuff. He loved to travel and he loved to, you know, just go out and do things. And we always spent time together. Yeah, I don't know. I think it would have been a lot of fun. My ghost dad had told Jessica that he and I would have clashed. But here was his real-life family telling me I would have been accepted. Which story did I want to believe? When David Jr. and Tina saw my book, they were supportive and proud. Happy to have my dad's redemption arc on paper. Their family photos commemorated in tiny drawings. I wondered if my father would have felt the same way. 
When my mom saw the book, her husband called and left me a threatening voicemail, forbidding me to talk about my supposed father or my so-called lifestyle. My mom doesn't entirely understand why I have to speak aloud any of the things that happened to me. It was a dynamic Jessica picked up on during our conversation. And it's really important to name that it's a survival mechanism because it's a survival mechanism in you to out your secrets. Just like for her, it's a survival mechanism to hide them under a pile of coats in the back of the closet. But I have a feeling it's because it contradicts the story my mom is most comfortable with. The one where she was the hero, my savior, and my father was the bad guy. But I don't disbelieve anyone's version. I think most humans show different versions of themselves to different people, at different times. In my family, my father had been the bad guy. And in Tina and David Jr.'s, very clearly he was the hero. My grandma Bonnie had been Tina's and my dad's bad guy. I just didn't see that side of her. Maybe, like my father, the truth was somewhere in between. The difference with my grandmother was, I got the opportunity to form my own opinions and create my own story with her. I got to meet someone who, it turns out, I had a lot in common with, and who made it her business, even in her dying days, to find me. She wanted to make up for the mistakes she thought her son had made. Here's a story my Aunt Julie remembered from her childhood. We used to go to the desert, which I hate. I hate the desert, but we were there with the dune buggies camping. It's dirty. David had actually accidentally, I think, ran over a jackrabbit. That would have bothered David because, you know, he would never intentionally do something like that. And they're everywhere out there. And my mom looked at it and she said, this rabbit has babies somewhere. She could tell. My mom's a farm girl. She searched all around that area and she found this nest and in down in it was like, I want to say 10 tiny little jackrabbits, little with big ears. She knew that was her mom. My mom scooped them up, put them in a box. We took them home. My mom raised The last time I saw my grandmother, she was in her bedroom, curiously reading one of my comic books. She was swollen and bald from chemotherapy and in so much pain that she couldn't even be bothered to don her usual brown curly wig. I crawled into bed beside her and held her hand. My small dog laid on her chest, rising and falling with her labored breathing. Well, I'm just still so glad that we found each other. Me too. Yeah. It was, it was certainly meant to be. I got a call one week later as I drove to teach comics in Oregon. Aunt Julie said Grandma had passed. I pulled my car into a Target parking lot in the sleepy suburbs so I could recline the seat and just stare, trying to absorb this information. We found each other, and now she was gone. As I sat, a hummingbird appeared and landed on the tiny, scraggly parking lot tree in front of my car. This felt remarkable. I had never seen a hummingbird sit still before, let alone somewhere so barren. It stayed on the branch and stared back at me. That hummingbird and I looked at each other for a long time. 
Every minute that passed, I expected it to fly away, but it just sat there, staring into my car. I told this story to my Aunt Julie, and it sparked a memory. When I was a little girl, our house had a great big picture window in the front, and there was a huge bush that almost covered the whole front window, so you really couldn't see the street. You just saw the inside of this bush. Well, there was a hummingbird nest. She loved hummingbirds, and she always had so many of them. She knew how to attract anything she wanted. And my mom was the first one to spot that they were building a nest. And I'm telling you, it was this far from the window. And she would gather us up and take us all in there to watch these hummingbirds. We had put a hummingbird feeder by her window toward the end, hoping she'd open her eyes and see it. Um, yeah, so that was special. I would agree with you there. It is special. I imagined my grandmother opening her eyes, seeing her hummingbirds one last time. Sending them on an errand to go check on her last little jackrabbit. Even though my time with Bonnie was brief, I felt like this is what all the detective work had been for. It didn't matter as much anymore if my mom's story was true or if my dad's story was true. They were both keeping secrets. I knew my relationship with my grandmother was true. I was there. I didn't know why she and my dad stopped talking, and I thought I never would. But as I readied myself to attend her funeral, I had no idea that I was about to come as close as I ever could to learning the reason why my father cut himself off from the entire base of his family tree. And it turns out, Aunt Julie held the key. She had always suspected it was one big secret my dad was still trying to keep from his wife of 25 years. Well, not just one big secret. Tina called me, it must have been before the wedding, and we were talking, and she said, I just want you to know that I know everything about David's past. He's told me everything. And I said... I'm very glad to hear that because, you know, he's got those children that he needs to, I'm sad that he's never acknowledged them, but now that he's told you, maybe that can change. And she says, well, Brendan and Jason, are, you know, they're here. And I'm like, I must have said, you know, oh, so you know about the girls. You know, I probably said it like that. And she's like, what? And the next episode... We meet the girls. And I get the curse of looking like the son of a bitch, so I'm like... <laughs> Relative Fiction is brought to you by Oregon Public Broadcasting. It's hosted by me, Nicole J. Georges, and written and produced by Claudia Meza and myself. Sage Van Wing is our executive editor. All original music is by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Sound design and audio editing by Claudia Meza. And all mixing and mastering by Stephen Cray. Special thanks to Ryan Haas, Elizabeth Miller, and Anna Griffin. And thanks to Jessica Lignato. You should really check out her podcast. It's called Ghost of a Podcast. You can find it at lovelignado.com. That's L-O-V-E-L-A-N-Y-A-D-O-O.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
Do you have a wild family mystery you're still trying to figure out? Tell us about it. Leave us a voicemail at 503-293-1993. Email us at relativefiction at opb.org. If you like our podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It really helps people find us. Also, Relative Fiction and all OPB's compelling storytelling and podcasts are made possible by the support of our members. Do your part to help make it happen. Become a sustaining member with an ongoing monthly contribution or make a single contribution now at opb.org pod.